Let us uh, go before our God in prayer here. Oh God, we thank you for uh, your church. We thank you for um, this group of believers that uh, we can all be a part of. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can be here to worship you and to learn from your word today. So we pray that uh, you would send your spirit and that uh, you would help us to do just that, uh, that we might understand uh, your word and that it would change the way that we live and change the way that we trust you and that it would build our faith and strengthen our Christian walk. So we pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, folks, we are continuing our series on the sacraments, as I said before. And today we're going to start looking at the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So we've spent a lot of time looking at baptism. And so just so you know, as we sort of kick off the Lord's Supper here, I just want to assure you we're not going to spend as much time on the Lord's Supper as we did on baptism. And that's not because the Lord's Supper is less important or any of that sort of thing. It's just because when we dealt with baptism, we had to spend a lot more time talking about, you know, the sacraments in general in order to talk about baptism. So now as we move to the Lord's Supper, we're essentially able to start talking about the distinctives of the Lord's Supper because we can assume all the stuff we talked about with baptism. So we'll review some of that stuff in general, but we'll also um, focus on uh, the distinctives more or less. Okay, Henry, did you have a question or were you just stretching there? (laughs) You were just stretching. All right, that's fine. Uh, So um, what the, my plan is here, as we deal with the Lord's Supper in these coming weeks, okay, what I'd like to do is, including today, we're going to spend two sessions talking about the history of the Lord's Supper, so just various other church traditions uh, and what some of their distinctives on this doctrine. And then after that, we'll look at three key biblical passages about the Lord's Supper. So that's our, our biblical side of the series. And then finally, we'll spend... I think three, maybe four weeks talking about uh, the theology of the Lord's Supper. So there we'll put everything together like we did for our theology of baptism. Okay, does that make sense? So we're not going to spend, I think we spent uh, 15 weeks on baptism. We're not going to do that for the Lord's Supper. So you don't have to, to, you know, buckle in for a long haul road sort of a thing here. So, all right, so let's talk about uh, the Lord's Supper. Today we're doing our first session on the history of the Lord's Supper. And we want to look at two primary church traditions on this doctrine, okay? And the two traditions that we're going to look at today are, first of all, the Roman Catholic tradition. What do they say about the Lord's Supper, or as they call it, the Mass? And then the second tradition we'll look at this morning is the Lutheran tradition, okay? So the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. And we're going to look at a couple of distinctives of those two groups. Now, just as we, as we get going, just as a sort of a disclaimer, note that we are not doing an exhaustive survey of either of these traditions, okay? If we had a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic sitting in here and they heard my presentation, they would probably have complaints that I didn't, oh, you didn't talk about this, or you didn't talk about that, or it wasn't complete enough in this regard. My point is not to do an exhaustive survey here, and it wasn't for baptism either. My point is just to highlight a few key aspects of the doctrine for these traditions. Okay? Does that make sense? So we're just looking at some basic stuff with regard to Roman Catholics and Lutherans on the Lord's Supper. All right, so let's look at uh, Roman Catholics first then. 
Uh, the Roman Catholics have a very strong doctrine of the Lord's Supper, or as they refer to it as the Mass. Okay? And uh, there are two major pieces of the Mass that I want to highlight for us this morning that are very different from our doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Two major things. Okay? First thing we'll talk about is the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice for the Roman Catholics. And then the second thing is transubstantiation. So sacrifice and transubstantiation. Those are two things that are very different in the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Lord's Supper as compared with ours. Okay? So firstly then, uh, sacrifice. Um, you know, in your general evangelical Bible church today, so if you find some non-denominational Baptist church or something, their general doctrine of the Lord's Supper is going to be way over here on this side. And on this side, you have essentially the idea that the Lord's Supper is nothing more than a pure memorial. Okay? The Supper is nothing more than just a sign. There's no spiritual work happening. There's no means of grace. There's no special presence of Christ. It, the Lord's Supper is purely just a sign. It's just a thing that we do to remember Jesus. Right? Do this in remembrance of him. That's the phrase that that side is going to emphasize a lot of. Right? So the Lord's Supper is just a sign, just something we do to remember the death of Christ. Okay? The Roman Catholic Church, on the other hand, is way over here on the other side of the equation. For them, the Lord's Supper is not just a sign. The Lord's Supper is much more than that. In fact, not only is the Lord's Supper a sign, and not only is the Lord's Supper have Christ physically present, but the Lord's Supper actually offers a kind of sacrifice. That is that Jesus' body and blood in the Lord's Supper are actually sacrificed again. Jesus, in a sense, is crucified again and again and again as the Mass is offered. Now, to be fair, okay, if you read Roman Catholics on this point, they'll, they'll still distinguish the true death of Christ on the cross from the repeating deaths of Christ in the observances of the Lord's Supper throughout the centuries. But nonetheless, they still say Jesus is truly sacrificed again and again and again as the Lord's Supper or as the Mass is offered. Okay? Now, the reason why they say this is because when they offer Christ, they sacrifice him, and the forgiveness of sins then and the infusion of grace is offered to those who partake of the bread and the wine. So for them, you have to sacrifice Christ over and over again to get that forgiveness of sins so that everyone can have it who's partaking of the supper. Okay? Now, that's the first thing that's distinct in the Roman Catholic doctrine of the supper. Christ is sacrificed in it. The second thing is transubstantiation. Okay? Now that is a very sort of big word, and maybe you've never heard of that word before, and that's okay. Uh, transubstantiation, if you just sort of break it down, it means trans-substance, or a change of substance. And so here's what Rome teaches. They say, when the bread and the wine all right, are brought to the sacrament, when they're brought to the Lord's Supper, right? we, we use bread and wine, or plastic discs and grape juice for some people, but bread and wine, okay, properly speaking, and 
when you bring the bread and wine to the sacrament, it's just normal bread and normal wine until the priest says the consecrated words and the bell is dinged or, I don't know, the bell is struck or whatever. And as soon as that happens, the bread and the wine are no longer bread and wine. The bread and the wine have changed in their substance. They've actually transformed into the true physical body and blood of Christ. So the bread and wine are not symbols for Roman Catholics. The bread and wine transform. The substance changes. Now, that doesn't mean that the bread and wine uh, taste like blood or they taste like flesh. Right? The bread and the wine still taste like bread and they taste like wine. Right? They still feel like bread and wine. They still smell like bread and wine. And so physically, all of the properties of bread and wine are still there. But the substance, the identity of the bread and wine has changed. It's no longer truly bread and wine anymore. The substance is Christ's body and blood. And that's why when the priest breaks the bread and when it is offered, it's not just a symbol that Christ's body is broken. It actually is being broken. Christ's body is being broken when the bread is broken because the bread is Christ's body. And so Christ is being offered as a broken sacrifice. You see that? So that's how the sacrifice and transubstantiation are fitting together there. Christ is being sacrificed because his true body and blood are there. And that sacrifice is how believers, when they partake of the Mass, receive the grace of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, they can be justified as soon as they've taken the Mass. Because remember, for Roman Catholics, you have to be justified over and over and over again. You're never, there's no assurance of salvation for Rome. There's always just the constant trying and failing and trying and failing and being saved and not being saved over and over and over again. So the Mass plays a part in this. It's one of the sacraments necessary to keep you in the faith, to keep you justified so that you can be saved. Okay? All right, so that is essentially the two major distinctives of Roman Catholic Mass or the Lord's Supper. A sacrifice is offered and the elements, the bread and wine, transform or transubstantiate into the body and blood of Christ. So in that sense, it's not just that Christ is present spiritually, like we would talk about a lot of times, but he's present physically. He is there in his body and blood. He is there in his human nature. And so that's why for Rome, they actually bow down to the bread and wine. They bow before the elements. Not because they're worshiping bread and wine, but because they think they're worshiping the body and blood of Christ because Christ is present. They are bowing before Christ. And so that's why you see them do that. Okay? All right. So that's the Roman Catholics on the Lord's Supper. That's all the farther I want to go with it. We could talk about a lot more stuff, but that's, um, that's basically the two high points. Now, as you can imagine, during the Reformation, uh, this doctrine of transubstantiation and, and the sacrifice and the mass and so on, this was really being developed by the Roman Catholics and propagated strongly in the, the immediate, really, two centuries before the Reformation. So this is really strongly being put out there by the time Luther and Calvin and the Reformers step onto the scene. And for Luther, 
he had major problems with this doctrine. And not only Luther, but all the reformers did. Calvin had huge problems with this. The whole reformed tradition had huge problems with the Roman Catholic doctrine of the mass. They said, no, Christ is not going to be offered over and over and over again. He was offered once for all time, the scripture says. There's no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus himself was the perfect sacrifice, we read in Hebrews 10. So the reformers stepped into the sea and they said, no, this is not the correct doctrine. However, the reformers themselves didn't always agree precisely on exactly how to understand the supper and how to understand what's happening in the supper and how to understand how Christ is present there and what that means, okay? So they, after rejecting the Roman Catholic doctrine, we end up with essentially three primary views among Protestants <clears throat> excuse me, about the Lord's Supper, okay? And those three views are the Lutheran view, the Reformed view, and the memorialist view, okay? Now, the memorialist view is held mostly by your, your general Baptist today, but not all Baptists hold it, so I'm just calling it the memorialist view. And we'll talk about the Reformed view, which is our view, and the memorialist view next week, okay? But today, I want to focus on the first of those three Protestant views, which rejected Rome, and that is uh, the Lutheran view. And... When I talk about the Lutheran view, uh, I'm trying to relay the view held by Martin Luther. Because uh, if you actually study Lutheran theology, you'll find out that the Lutherans themselves don't always agree exactly on, on what the Lutheran view is or how to exactly put it together. And, and neither do the Reformed, right? The Reformed have some different variations too. But there are some general strands that, that you know, hold for everybody. So that's what I want to focus on here. So I'm focusing on Luther and what he understood the Lord's Supper to be. Okay? So the, the two major aspects of Luther's thought on the Lord's Supper are, first of all, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, and secondly, what we sometimes call today consubstantiation. Lutherans, by the way, don't like that term. So just a uh, disclaimer there, but we're going to use it just because it's the commonly designated term, and we'll talk about what it means in just a second. All right, so Luther on the Lord's Supper, means of grace. What does it mean that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace? Luther had a very strong understanding of the means of grace, okay? For Luther, there were three means of grace. The primary means of grace is the word of God, okay? The secondary means of grace is twofold, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So for Luther, he said, there are ways that God gives his grace to his people. One is through the word, and the other is through the sacraments. And so in that way, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It is a means by which God gives grace and forgiveness of sins to believers. All right? Here's what Luther says about the supper. This is from his larger catechism, which I encourage you to read if you want to learn more about Luther. It's, it's very helpful in a lot of ways. Luther says, quote, The Lord's Supper is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in and under the bread and wine, which we Christians are commanded by Christ's word to eat and to drink. Now, notice Luther here talks about the Lord's Supper being the true body and blood of Christ. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But for Luther, the Lord's Supper, or the sacraments in general, become 
sacraments. They become means of grace only when they're connected with the word of God. For Rome, that's not the case. For Rome, you just pronounce the magic words, boom, the elements, bread and wine, they turn into the body and blood of Jesus. You don't need the preaching of the word. Luther said, no, you need the preaching of the word because it is the word of God that contains the gospel. The word of God alone contains the gospel. And when connected with the sacrament, the sacrament presents that word of God in a visible form to be received by faith. And so Christians then, when they partake of the sacrament, they receive the forgiveness of sins through faith because the word is present. And what Luther said, as we say in the Reformed view also, is that therefore faith is required for the sacrament to give that grace and forgiveness of sins. You have to have faith. Unbelievers don't get forgiveness of sins when they partake of the Mass uh, for Luther. And for Luther, faith is required. The supper is a means of grace by faith. And so the partakers receive the forgiveness of sins and they receive the grace of God. And so for that reason, then, Luther says, on this account, it is indeed called a food of souls, which nourishes and strengthens the new man. Therefore, the sacrament is given as a daily pasture and sustenance that faith may refresh and strengthen itself. See, there Luther is saying things that sound a lot like the reform view, doesn't he? Right? That the sacrament is for the strengthening of our faith. It requires faith on the front hand. Now, um, based on some things that Luther says elsewhere and on some later developments in Lutheran theology, there, there is a view in Lutheranism that says that the Lord's Supper actually gives faith, similar to the way that baptism works, that baptism gives faith. If you remember, we talked about Luther's doctrine of baptism a number of weeks ago. Uh, so that's a little bit uh, out there on the fringes. It's not exactly what Luther meant, I don't think. But uh, Luther here argues very similarly to the Reform view. Right? Sacraments, the Lord's Supper requires faith, and its purpose is to be a means of grace to strengthen and nourish the faith of a uh, recipient. Only if they're a believer, though, not for the unbeliever. All right, so now that's not to say, though, that Luther was reformed. <laughs> Luther was not reformed in his doctrine of the sacraments, but he did have some important elements that are similar to ours. And Luther was not reformed on the Lord's Supper because uh, we have also not only that the Supper is a means of grace, but we have the second distinctive here. Where Luther talked about this idea of what we call consubstantiation. Okay, Now, You remember, we talked a minute ago about transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the Roman Catholic view that the bread and wine transform into the body and blood of Christ. That is not the same as Luther's view of consubstantiation. Again, Luther, I don't think he ever actually used that word, but it's just a theological term we use to describe his view. And what we mean by consubstantiation, or, or really what Luther meant, is he said... Christ is present in the supper, not just spiritually, but he is present spiritually and physically. Now notice, that's similar to Rome. The Roman Catholics say Christ is present spiritually and physically. Luther says Christ is present spiritually and physically. But 
Luther and Rome have two very different understandings about how Christ is present. For Rome, the elements transform into Christ. For Luther, the elements do not transform into Christ. Rather, Luther says that Jesus is physically present in his human nature, in the supper, in, with, and under the elements. In, with, and under. So he's not saying that the bread and wine transform into Jesus' body and blood. What he's saying is Jesus' body and blood are there. They're not the bread and wine, but they're in the bread and wine in some mysterious, mystical way. And Luther says, that's all we can know about it. That's all we can know. Christ said, when he held out the bread and the wine to his disciples, he said, this is my body. This is my blood. And Luther says, we just need to take Christ at his word. Not try to use reason, not try to rationalize things, not try to, you know, figure out how we can explain everything. No, just take Christ at his word. He's present. Jesus' body is there. We don't know how, but it's in, with, and under the elements in some mysterious way. Okay? Now, that's Luther's view. And we're going to see next week that that is very, well, that's not, not very different, but it is different than the Reformed view. Okay? Because what the Reformed are going to do, particularly Calvin and Zwingli and some of these other guys, is they're going to come and they're going to say, okay, you know what, Luther, we can understand what you're saying. We totally get that you want to take Christ at his word. He says, this is my body, this is my blood, right? We need to take that seriously, all right? We get that. But Luther, there's a little bit of an error here, we think, in your thinking. Because what you're trying to say is that the human nature of Christ is present in the sacrament. Well, that is going to be a problem, Luther. Why? Because... What happens if you have two sacraments going on at the same time? And you may say, I don't really don't care if there are two sacraments happening at the same time. What does that matter? What does that have to do with this debate? Well, the Reformed say, Luther, if there are two sacraments happening at the same time, that means Christ's human nature has to be present in both places at the same time. And you say, oh, that doesn't seem that big of a deal. Christ is God, right? He can be in two places at the same time. Well, yes, Christ in his divine nature, Christ in his person can be in two places at the same time. But Christ in his human nature cannot be in two places at the same time. And why is that? Well, the reform said it's because if Jesus' human nature can be in two places at the same time, then it's not really a human nature, right? Because humans cannot be in two places at the same time. And what Luther said to get around this issue is he said, well, he said, we need to appeal to what he called the communicatio idiomatum, which I'm sure you all you know, say that and remember what that is on occasion. Luther appealed to a Latin phrase, the communicatio idiomatum, which translated means the communication of attributes. And so what Luther said is the human nature of Christ can be present in two places at once because the divine nature gives attributes to the human nature that are only of the divine nature. 
Now you say, okay, you lost me. I have no idea what you're saying. But here's what I'm saying. For Luther, what he said is that the divine nature says, comes into the human nature and gives the human nature the divine attribute of omnipresence. And so the divine nature makes the human nature be able to be in two places at one time. Now the Reformed came along and said, hold on a second, you can't do that, Luther. You can't say that. That is a heresy. That's a mingling of the two natures. The divine nature can't give attributes to the human nature because otherwise then the two natures are mixing. The two natures are mixing. You can't do that. That's a heresy. That's Eutychianism. And so the reform said, no, we must maintain sound Christology when we're talking about the Lord's Supper. We must have a strong and pure doctrine of Christ. Christ's human nature cannot be in two places at once because that would make it possible that his human nature is not truly human. Now, you might be sitting out there just thinking, okay, well, this sounds really technical. Why on earth does this matter? Why, why do we have to say that Christ's human nature has to be purely human? Why can't the divine nature give attributes and make the human nature omnipresent or able to be in two places at one time or something? Why does Christ have to be purely human in his human nature and maintain that distinction between his divinity and his humanity? Let me just ask you, I'm looking for feedback here, just really quick. So he could sacrifice himself. So he could sacrifice himself. Okay. Why does Christ have to be truly human in order to sacrifice himself? Okay, because he shed his blood, right? Because that's what we are. Right. That's right. Yeah. You guys have hit the nail right on the head. The reason why Christ has to be truly human and truly divine. But why his humanity needs to be pure and not mixed with his divinity is because Christ had to die for humans. If Christ were not truly human like we are truly human, then he could not have atoned for our sin. This is actually the great argument of the the amazing theologian whom I really like, St. Anselm. During the Middle Ages, he wrote this book called Curdeus Homo. And his book was called Curdeus Homo. It translates from the Latin as, why God-man? Or in other words, what Anselm is saying is he's asking the question, why did Jesus have to be God and man? And what Anselm says is that Jesus had to be God and man because man owed a debt that only God could pay. Man owed an infinite debt to an infinite God. And so Jesus had to be the God-man. He had to be truly man in order to owe the debt that true humans owed. And he had to be truly God in order to pay the infinite price that finite human beings cannot pay. And so what the reform do, as this applies to the Lord's Supper, is they say, look, Luther, we understand you're trying to be faithful to Christ. But the problem is what you're doing is, first of all, you're misunderstanding Christ because he didn't mean what he said literally. But secondly, in order to make your view work, Luther, you have to sacrifice sound Christology. In order to make your view work, you have to mingle the human and the divine natures of Christ. And you can't do that because if you do that, the gospel is at stake. And that's something that Luther never quite got. But it's something that the Reformed always said we wish he would have. 
because it would have been great if the Lutheran and the Reformed traditions could have united at that point. But Luther wouldn't do it. He held to what he believed Christ was saying. I guess that's all you can expect from good theologians is to hold true to what they believe the Scripture is saying. But we do make mistakes as uh, believers because of sin. We misunderstand Scripture sometimes. And it requires careful thought uh, oftentimes to distinguish right theology from wrong theology. And so we'll look more carefully at the Reformed view next week because the Reformed are going to say, well, we do think Christ is present, Luther. You're right. Christ is present in the supper. But his human nature can't be present physically. He can't be present locally because that causes all kinds of trouble for the doctrine of Christ and it puts the gospel at stake. So we need to, to modify this and try to understand this in a different way. And so we'll look at how the Reformed dealt with this next week. But largely speaking, the reform did borrow a lot from Luther. And we'll look at what they took from him next week when we get to that point. All right, that's all I've got. Uh, are there any questions briefly that you guys have before we uh, wrap it up this morning? Some of the discussion this morning I know is a little technical theologically. I promise it won't always be. But I appreciate you trying your best to figure out what this crazy guy up here is trying to say. And uh, it is important. And I hope that uh, it's been helpful in some regard. But next week, hopefully, it'll be a little, little bit less technical. All right. Well, let's close in prayer this morning. Oh, God, we thank you for, uh, thank you for your word. And, Lord, um, we know this is a very difficult subject and one that divides good Christian people. And, Lord, we just pray that... Uh, you would give us clarity of thought and humility. And as we study these things, Lord, that uh, um, we would hold fast to your word and that we would uh, understand it. And so we pray, Lord, not only that this would be helpful for us theologically, but that this would be uh, helpful for us in our Christian walk, that as we partake of the supper throughout the year, as the months go on, that uh, we would remember these things and we remember how important the sacraments are to you and how important they should be to us. I pray now, Lord, that you would uh, prepare us now to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning in our service, and that you prepare us to hear the preaching of your word. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.